Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. And happy Monday. Welcome to another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. As always, business out of the way first. Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday and Thursday at 8 a.m. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast. But if you want to do something nice, you want to give us a hand, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook at Snapshots in Hockey History and on Twitter at Snapshots in. Hope everyone had a great weekend. I know I did. As I mentioned last episode, I kind of took my annual vacation to Canada. I went to the Ontario area and saw a couple Ontario Hockey League games and had a good trip. There was some snow up there. I think this is the first time I've ever been to Canada in like the dead of winter. And it was cold. It was definitely cold. I started the Friday in Toronto, flew into Pearson. My plane was late, so I drove directly to Oshawa to see the Oshawa Generals take on the Ottawa 67s. I was really excited. Wendell Clark's son, who was supposed to play in the game. Of course, he didn't. With my luck, he was a scratch. I think he might be hurt. But I still enjoyed exploring Oshawa a little bit, checking things out. It was cool to see the Oshawa Generals play for the first time live. I'd never seen them play before. Actually, I had seen them play, but I guess not at home. So it was neat to see a team that's filled with such tradition. I mean, Bobby Orr, Eric Lindros, so many names have come through that organization. Also, not to mention the wings that I had at the, they have like a pub, I think they call it the Prospects Bar and Grill, were some of the best wings I've ever had. They had like a maple spice mixture. It was really good. I actually talked to the chef afterwards. Cooking's a hobby of mine. Begged him for the recipe. He gave it to me. So I hope to kind of recreate those at home and then drove back and stayed in Mississauga. And then on Saturday, went up and saw the Hamilton Bulldogs play in Hamilton versus the Mississauga Steelheads. Downtown Hamilton's a cool city. It's definitely changing. Reminds me a lot of Providence Rhode Island, grabbed a piece of pizza, saw the Bulldogs play. That was a pretty good game. The Bulldogs ended up winning it in OT. They've got some talent on their team. And after winning it all last year, you know, they had a lot of young skaters, but they definitely had Strom back there. They had this one guy whose name I can't remember, number 34. He was a hell of a player. So definitely enjoyed my weekend in Canada. And then on the way home, actually ran into an NCAA D1 assistant coach. We were standing in line at customs. I was wearing a cap sweatshirt. He was wearing his college's information. We got to talking. I haven't really talked about this on the podcast, but I have a little bit of a background in officiating. And so he knew some guys that I knew that officiated in the Hockey uh, East where his team played. So it was really good to talk to him and, and, and kind of pick his brain. He was up there for a recruiting trip and saw a couple OJ teams play. And the one thing kind of coming home that I just want to put out there, I'm kind of curious to see where the future of major junior hockey goes. In this battle for talent, I think the NCAA and Major Junior are at it neck and neck, and I think the NCAA is actually pulling ahead. And I'm kind of curious what that will mean for Major Junior. And after talking to this one coach extensively about it, I got his opinion on it. And he even said, he goes, if you're number one or number two or projected to go in the top 10, Major Junior might be the best route to go. But if you're not, why wouldn't you go get an all-expense paid four-year scholarship to an NCAA school? And I asked him, I said, are the NCAA schools better than Canadian universities? He goes, no, it's not that. But the NCAA hockey is better than university hockey, which I know because you don't really see a lot of guys come out of university hockey and play in the NHL. They're very few and far between. But he said something that really, really kind of stuck with me. And this is something I don't really know how it works. And maybe someone, a listener can explain to me. I guess with Major Junior, there are so many stipulations with these scholarships packages 
you have to get for every year you play, you get a scholarship. So you have to play just to get a four year education. You got to almost come in as a 16 year old, which very few players do. And then on top of that, if you like sign a pro contract, the scholarship goes away. He's telling me all this and I'm really wondering to myself, what is the benefit of playing major junior? It's definitely an interesting debate, and, and I don't know the answer. I, I'm just a guy on the outside looking in. But it definitely got me thinking, and I'm curious your opinion. So hit me up at brettsmall84 at gmail.com if you have another side of the argument or if you know someone that does. I think I might have to have someone from the Ontario Hockey League come on here and maybe we have a, a spirited discussion about it. Because don't get me wrong, I'm a huge fan of major junior hockey. Heck, I just flew across the country to go see it. But I just don't see how you can compete with an education package from the NCAA. So I'm curious to see where Major Junior Hockey ends up. Appreciate all the positive feedback we got last week on our episode with Claude Vilgrain about the 1988 Olympic run. I was kind of nervous how that was going to be received, considering it's kind of outside the NHL and it was something a little bit different. But the name of the show is Snapshots in Hockey History, so I thought it'd be cool to kind of bring that international element to it. And it seems like you guys liked it. I got a lot of positive feedback, so thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Today, we've got a guest that I was so excited to have the opportunity to interview, and he could not have been cooler. He didn't disappoint. Big Jim McKenzie joined us. Jim, of course, played in the NHL for, God, probably 10 to 15 years. He played on several different teams. And every time I get a new guest on, I reach out to a couple players that I've kind of developed relationships with. And everybody said the same thing about Jim. They said that Jim was one of the toughest guys around. And he didn't fight all the time because a lot of guys didn't want to fight him. But one thing that stuck out to me was the fact that he wouldn't mess with you unless you did something wrong. He was very respectful like that. Some of the interviews we do give you a really good perspective inside the locker room. And this interview has that, but one of the things Jim has the ability of doing because of his experience working in the game as a player and now as a scout, is he's really to give you some insightful things as what an NHL player kind of thinks about while they play in the NHL. And I really enjoyed hearing that, and it's something I really hadn't heard before. And you'll have to hear the interview to kind of hear what I'm saying for that statement that I just made to make sense. But he talks about things that I don't think you could get a perspective on unless you played in the NHL during the era he played. For his interview, we covered the final season of the Winnipeg Jets. The Jets, of course, were in a very, very fragile state. It was announced by the NHL that they'd be moving, and then all of a sudden the move got put on hold, and they would play one more year in Winnipeg. It was the 95-96 season. A lot of fans were upset that the team was moving. And we get into the reasons why the team moved, so I don't want to talk about that here. But the final thing I'll say before I get to the interview is that Jim actually didn't start in Winnipeg in the 95-96 season. He started with the Islanders and things didn't really work out there. We didn't really have the opportunity to talk about kind of why things didn't work out with the Islanders. I can only imagine it was that 95-96 era. Things were on the island were changing. I mean, they had the fishermen come about, stuff like that. So I'm not really sure why it didn't work. I'm sure I can ask Jim and hopefully I'll have him on again down the road. But in the meantime, enjoy part one of our interview with Big Jim McKenzie on the final season of the Winnipeg Jets. So things don't really work out on the island. As you said, you got picked up by waivers. Let's talk about that. Do you remember where you were and when you found out? Yeah, Salt Lake City. Yeah, I uh, got assigned to Salt Lake City. I think they were going on the road or something, the Islanders. But I went to Salt Lake City. I practiced a few times with them. Then they're, Back then, they had a waiver draft. It wasn't like they do now where you put players through waivers. They have an actual draft. And I was made available for that, and uh, Winnipeg picked me up. So you were actually going to go back down to the American League. You were not set, or was it the IHL then? Yeah, I believe it was the IHL. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. What did you know about the Jets at the time? You know what? Not a lot. I mean, I'd obviously I played against them, uh, you know, a bunch of times. But, you know, there was nothing. Uh, I didn't know anyone there. 
didn't have any contacts or anything like that. You know, nothing like that. It was just that was the team that picked me up, and I was grateful for the opportunity. As a pro athlete in the National Hockey League, how hard is it to just drop everything? I mean, you'd been planning on pretty much living on the island, and now you're going to a different country to live, and you're going to be in Manitoba. How hard is it to pick up and move everything? You know what? It's it's actually it's not that hard as a player because you walk in and you got 20 new friends and 20, 20 new teammates and that. It's, it's easy. It's always, and at that time I had a young family, it's always harder for the family. It was easy for me to do it. I have family still in Winnipeg. I've been, I've been to Winnipeg more times probably as a kid than I was as a pro or anything else because um, I grew up in Saskatchewan and I have family on my father's side that still live there. So uh, it's one of the teams I scout now and I, I look forward to going just because I know I'm going to get to see people I know. So that part didn't bother me at all. It's just always a matter of, okay, now it's the new start. And you got to go in and you got to try to impress somebody else and, and uh, find your way in, uh, so to speak, you know. And uh, that's always probably the harder part is fitting in with everybody else and making sure it all works that way. As we said, you got picked up on October 2nd. And there was a rumor that the Jets had previously expressed interest in you a couple of years beforehand. I don't know if you had heard that, but evidently, According to Winnipeg Free Press, John Paddock had seen you play while you were down in the American Hockey League, and you had a fight against Rudy Poshek. And after that, he was fell in love with you, basically. He had been coaching the Bimington Rangers at the time. Did you know John at all before this point, or was this meeting him for the first time? Oh, no, this was meeting him for the first time. Uh, obviously knew him as a, more as a player, his reputation and the rest of the Flyers, right? Right. Uh, you know, so no, I didn't know John at all. No. And uh, it's funny you say that because I wouldn't have known that either. You know, as a player, you don't know in the American League when you're playing, especially when you're that young, you don't know who's coaching the other team, right? You don't have or where they go or any of those other things. So it's it's kind of funny. It's a small world in hockey. It really is. You're able to participate in a few practices before the start of the regular season because this literally happened pretty late into training camp. Who were some of the guys that welcomed you to the team and that you kind of started to develop some chemistry with? Well, it's actually a great, great group. I mean, we all, like, everybody there got along. I mean, that was that was the thing. It was a, it's a real easy group. I ended up, uh, I was roommates with Eddie Olchuk. Yep. Um, you know, but but everybody there, uh, Keith Kachuk and Tamo Solani was still there, and Tamo would end up getting traded uh, uh, later that year to Anaheim. Uh, but just a, you know, Dallas Drake, you know, all those guys. Like it was, it was a really good group of, uh, of guys. Uh, Dave Manson and Teppo Newman and. Got along really well with all the Russians. Uh, Igor Korolev, Jamnov, my buddy there, Nikki Hobby uh, Bulin. Uh, the Russian group was a really good group, a very talented group, uh, but but great guys as well. It's really funny. Like you see, I still. It's funny. I'm I'm here scouting tonight in uh, Colorado. They're playing Bakersfield. I was here last night, and uh, Dave Manson is one of the assistant coaches for Bakersfield. So I got to see him. I haven't seen him in years, and go over and and. Uh, Say hi to him, Mike Stapleton, who's still a really good friend. Mike uh, scouts for for uh, Anaheim. I see him all the time on the road. Um, it's it's just the funniest. It's a there's a lot of guys that stayed in the game. There was a great group of guys, and uh, still get to see them uh, a fair amount now. Whenever uh, whenever I'm around, oh, it's kind of nice. You get a little mini reunion. No matter where you go, it feels like you know somebody. You're at home almost. Well, yeah, you know, uh, Norm McIver's with Chicago, uh, Chris King's with the league, so I see him once in a while, Shane Doan I see once in a while, more he's coaching his kids right now, but it, it really was, it was a great group of guys, everybody got along so well, uh, you know, it was, and like I said, I, I have family there, so for me to go to Winnipeg, that was, it was almost, it was the only year I got to play in Canada, which was awesome, it was pretty cool, kind of like, I laugh, it's kind of like slap shot, but I mean this in a good way, where, you know, like, hey, Reg, you got to work on the power play. When anywhere you went, people had an opinion. They're passionate about the game. They all played it at some point. They all been watching it, 
and uh, they all had an opinion on what could be better or what was this or what was that, or they'd ask you a question and you could be picking up dry cleaning or you could be just walking down the street. I mean, it was, it was a great experience and I enjoyed it. Do you think for you it was a good experience given that it's not the major market Toronto where literally it's every second of the day you turn on the TV, it's there? Or was it like that in Winnipeg where it's still pretty much the same thing? There might not be as many people, but hockey is still number one. It's yeah, it's still as big. You just you're just not a big as media market. It's not even that you're not even as big a city. It's probably more you're not a, as big a media market. Um, you know, and I've always it's funny you say that because I look at it and I've always looked at it, even when I played. I'm like, why would anyone want to play in Toronto? You know, the guys Fair. that are from. But I mean, the guys that are from there. But the guys that are from there say, are you kidding? Like this is home, and you know, it's just there's something about it they love, and I can totally relate with Winnipeg probably being the closest city to, to where I grew up in Saskatchewan. I, I, that totally makes sense where it's, you know, you feel like you're at home. You, this is where you grew up. For the kids in Toronto, they grew up watching the, the Maple Leafs and to pull that jersey on is a big deal. So um, it's not not nearly as bad as it's made out to be. I can see why it went sideways for some guys where they, they get a big contract. That's usually what happens and, and they go in and they can't just can't, you know, get going in the right direction right away. That's hard. But that really wasn't a big deal back then because – uh, it wasn't what it was then as it is now uh, for, for what guys are making or contracts and that kind of thing. Speaking of contracts, we touched on Keith Kachuk a little while ago, and he had been in a pretty long and arduous contract negotiation with John Paddock and management. And he ended up signing a very lucrative contract that was front-loaded. And because it was front-loaded with the situation that the Jets' ownership had, it actually turns out that the taxpayers actually paid some of his salary, believe it or not, due to an agreement the Jets had with the city of Winnipeg. A guy comes off something like that, and I think I've never heard a bad word about Keith Kachuk, but did the fans accept him right away, given that holdout and given that the team was kind of in a fragile state? You know what? He never had a problem, probably for a lot of reasons. Like you said, when you meet him, he's got a great personality. You know what I mean? He's just, he just has that. He'll sit and talk. He can talk to you. He, he does amateur scouting for St. Louis. He can talk to you about if he's watching a game and tell you skating, stick handling, pucks go like He knows the game that way, so he can talk to you that way, but... Better than that in Winnipeg, I mean, I think he led us in penalty minutes that year, and that mm-hmm. was the year he got, uh, I think he got 50 goals that year. So if you, if you see the guy out there scoring 50 goals and he's leading your team or close to it in penalty minutes, what's not to like in Winnipeg, sure. right? You know, he's going he's gonna to get on you. At some point, you're going to say, okay, yeah, okay, it's all right. You know, I wish we had a couple more guys like this. Not happy about the contract maybe, but wish we had more guys like that. So I don't think it was a big deal. And he was the right guy to, to have a contract like that because, like I said, there's certain guys, if you have the wrong personality and they, you go in there and they ask you questions about it, a lot of guys will wilt. It'll, they'll take it on their shoulders and they can't carry it. And, you know, in his case, like I said, he went out and scored 50 goals, so it didn't bother him too much. He ended up having the C stripped from him. Do you know if that bothered him at all? Or was he pretty much just, hey, Chris King's going to take the team now. I'm still going to be a leader. That's just the way it went down because of the contract negotiation. I don't know that it bothered him. If it did, he didn't show it. And with Keith, when things bother him, I wouldn't even say bother him. Anything that like that would that's going to do nothing but motivate him. He's just going to play harder, and it's going to. And he, when he plays harder, he's, you're, he's going to score more goals, and it's going to cost you more money next time his contract's up. So, in the end, <laughs> and and he'll be the first to tell you that. So yeah, go ahead. I got fifty. I'm going to go get fifty-five. Where's your pay? Where's your uh, checkbook? Let's go. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know that. That was kind of nothing. Nothing rattled him that way. It, if anything, it made him it motivate him. You know, like I said, he, he loved to play and he was great at. It. He played with an edge and and uh, he was a lot of fun to be around. I don't think anybody picked up a a lunch or or could get anywhere near the register anytime we were out as a team or anything. He was the first guy there. He, you know, all year long, he was unbelievable. 
Oh, my gosh. Well, we talked about some of the veterans in camp. Let's talk about two young 18-year-olds that were on the team and end up making the team. What do you remember about a young Jason Doig, who was 18, and a young Shane Doan, who would go on to have an unbelievable career? Uh, you know what? Both great, great kids. Both uh, big, heavy kids. Like, you know, thick, could skate, but big kids. And um, they're, I think probably they had no problem fitting the same thing. They fit in. They... Uh, you know, they were listeners. They listened to the older guys that, uh, you know, if you're if you're Jason and you got guys like Keith Manson and Teppo on the blue line, and I think Randy Carlisle was our defense coach, you know, I thought from what I saw, he was really good at listening and, and trying to take in and adapt to whatever they were saying. And and Shane was, I mean, Shane was always that way. He was all ears. He, you know, he listened to everybody, he did whatever guys, you know, hey, try this, do this, that kind of stuff. So you could see the talent they had and, you know, much different than now, Certainly the young guys coming in have talent to play, but back then you just didn't have the talent. You had to be big enough and man strong enough to to play. You see a lot of these young guys now aren't, and when they take a hit, they're out, they get injured, and they're done for a week, sometimes longer. And uh, it was just a different game with the physical play that you had to, as skilled as you had to be to play in the league, if if you're Shane Doan, you had to be physically strong. You had to be able to handle yourself with men. And I definitely want to touch more on that physical play shortly, because I know you were known as a physical player, and I definitely want to circle back on that. But before we do, we're wrapping up training camp. Chris King is named as the team captain, as we talked about. How was Chris as a leader? He was great. Chris is a smart guy. He was a lead-by-example guy. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that year, and especially the next year in, in uh, Phoenix, I mean, he played physical every shift. He fought everybody. He fought all kinds of guys. Like, he was, he was as tough as they come, so... He led that way, and, and like I said, he was, a, he was a smart guy, so he could have the feel of the room, you know, and, and that was a big deal back then. It's, again, another part where the game's changed, but you knew that if this is the third game in four nights and you're going to be tired or sluggish or whatever, you know what, you, then you went to the physical play and you, you went to the, you know, keep the shift short, get out, finish. Like you just, you tried a simple way of winning battles each shift to hopefully get you to the end where you could get a goal or somebody would get you a goal to win, you know. So you needed guys like that that knew the room, and, and uh, he was certainly that. Opening night was at home against the Dallas Stars. The Jets would end up winning this game five uh, seven to five, getting goals from Darren Shannon, Jason Doig, Igor Karolov, Mike Kennedy, and Neil Wilkinson. But I have to ask: the Dallas Stars at this time were led by Mike Madano. You were sometimes put in that situation where you had to play against the top forwards and play a defensive role. How hard was it to play against Mike Madano? You know what? It's it's probably be honest. It's harder for the defenseman. You know, because if you're the winger, you're more, you're more. If you're in your own zone, you, you're gonna have to keep a closer eye on their defenseman. And the only time would be if you got caught down low. And back then, you didn't play a lot of man-to-man. You you rotated off. So if you if I were the first back checker back, and that's who, unfortunately, I got to try to keep up with would be would be Maul. Then the first chance your centerman, I don't know, I think it would maybe Mike Stapleton or someone like that. I play with Whitey would give you a yell as he was coming back, and you'd switch off and go back to your wing. So. The biggest part was that it, it really didn't change your – the lucky part I had, your game didn't change. So if I'm playing against another team's fourth line or their first line, it's not like I'm going to suddenly say, okay, their fourth line's out here. I think I'm going to start dangling and handling the puck and making plays today, right? That's not that's that's not my game. Your game actually never changed. And, and uh, the, the sooner you realize that, the, actually the better you got because you played simple against the really good teams and, and then your coach would trust you a little more. And you play simple against the – the players that were of the same caliber, you might be able to do more offensively or make more plays. So uh, it wasn't too bad. You just got to stay within yourself. And like I said, try not to be that down low guy when he was the one on the ice. Because I imagine he had some speed. When he got going, it was probably hard to keep up. Oh, it was insane. I, I played against him in, in junior in, uh, in the Western League. And mm-hmm. 
you'd watch him wind up behind the net, either in the circle in the corner, or go behind the net, pick the puck up, and and you just like, holy cow, here he comes! Like, and there's nothing you could do because you, you can't take an angle on a guy skating that fast. You know, there's just nothing. You know, you can't hook him, trip him. Uh, you know that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, he was uh, he was a great player. He was a lot of fun to watch when I wasn't on the ice. <laughs> when you weren't. <laughs> Question. And this kind of goes off topic. You talked about playing in the Western League against him. At the time, it was very rare to have Americans that would come into the Western League. It was pretty much predominantly a Canadian league. Did did people look at the Americans differently? Did they try to, you know, I've talked to some other players and they said that if you saw an American, you kind of went and took an extra shot because most of those guys were used to wearing the cages all the time. From your experience, was that a thing? Uh, no, I don't think it was that. I think what at that time, he was coming north and it was guys like Rod Brindamore that were starting to go south. You know, it was just the beginning of that trade-off where Canadian guys, top guys like like Rod, were trying the Canadian or uh, U.S. college route, and and we were just starting to get the you know the high-end talented guys like Mike that were were going to come up and play there. I think more of it was, you know, from the American standpoint, Canadian standpoint, it was more of a college thing. So I remember, like, when you went to training camp, you didn't have a contract. My first couple of years, I didn't have a contract. You went in and you were trying to earn one. And the older guys would tell you, like the first guys, the guys your age that are there that are also doing the same thing, find the guys that have a college degree because they're not going to battle as hard as you are for a twenty or $25,000 contract in the minors when they've got a degree from some college and they can go make two, three times that, not getting beat up or knocked on their butt. And so that was more of, a, of where you, you tried to raise the battle or you tried to raise the compete level, if that makes sense. But Oh, it no, makes he, perfect he, sense. Yeah, it makes yeah. No one's going to run or ride a bus in the ECHL in Norfolk, Virginia, to Roanoke. If exactly. they've got a college degree where they can make fifty thousand, they're not going to do it for ten grand. It's just not going to happen. Exactly, exactly. And back then, like my first year in the, in the American, that's what it was—twenty-five or thirty. I can't remember what it was on a one-year deal to play in the American Hockey League. And you know, like I said, it was a college guy with a degree. His choice to go make two, three times that doing what he did, or my choice to go back to Saskatchewan and probably maybe become a police officer. Maybe a pro wrestler. I always want to be a pro wrestler, too. You would have been a good one. You would have been a good one. I have no doubt on that. (laughs) You would have been a very good one. I could see you against Hillbilly Jim or something like that. (laughs) Just five games into the season, the Jets meets the defending Stanley Cup champions, the New Jersey Devils. Future Hall of Famer defenseman Scott Stevens is out there doing what Scott Stevens does. He actually sticks his knee out and collides with one of your friends, Alexei Zamnoff, and immediately... You answer the bell and challenge the Devils captain to send a message. Does anything stick out in your mind against fighting Scott Stevens? Uh, you know what? Uh, probably the two things. One, he's Scott Stevens. He doesn't have to fight me. Yes. Right? And he did. And two, just how strong he was. I mean, just – and I ended up getting to play with him, obviously, several years later. I played with him for a couple seasons. He just – he's incredibly – he trains really hard. It's not just natural, hey, I do nothing strength. This guy – he still trains. If you see him on TV now, you can tell he still trains. But uh, just the, the, that he actually fought me, that he said, all right, you know what? I caught him and I'll, let's, let's go, And uh, which is the way it was back then. And just inc- how incredibly strong he was. Very, very strong guy. In the Winnipeg Free Press, you were quoted as saying what Scott had done was not okay. And I know he wrote a fine line in today's NHL. With the way he would throw hits in his body, do you think he would have survived in today's NHL with the environment, given the suspensions and the how the game has changed? I don't know. I, I know he's he's a very smart guy. He's a smart hockey player. So, you know, where the line is is where he was. So if you move the line, he can move with it, if that makes sense. It does. You know, so, uh, you know, the way defensemen, whether it was him or Ken Danico or some of those guys, uh, Dave Manson, how they work guys in front of the net. Like it used to be, 
it wasn't a skill to go to the front of the net. It was how tough you were, how, how willing you were to go in and take that beating to get a loose puck, to make a deflection, that kind of stuff. Well, they couldn't do that today. You're not allowed to hit. And so those guys would all have to adapt. And Scott is no different. He would find a way to adapt. So, and, and you remember, I mean, the, the points he put up on the other side of it. So it wasn't like he was just out there clobbering guys. He could play as well. Maybe today's game benefits him somehow as well, just because there's things you wouldn't be able to do against him in terms of the hooking and the holding and those kinds of things that went on in his era. Um, so, but no, I, I think in his case, he'd adopt, he'd still be physical. He'd still hit. There's still guys that do. They're more rare than, than ever before. But he would, like I said, as the line moved, he'd move with it. And that's the way it would be. Do you think he might be one of the top five defensemen that ever played the game? Uh, I think he's got to be right there. Absolutely. Because there's the, one of the great things about him, you'd want him on the ice in every situation. There's no, there's no, you couldn't drop a game plan where you say, okay, maybe not Scott Steven. Like he would play. We're short-handed. We're on the power play. We're five on five. It's in this zone. Their best finds out there. You know what? They're back in the day. They're three toughest guys are out there. I'll put Scott out there. Like, like there's no situation you couldn't play him in. You can't say that about every defenseman. There's going to be a situation where you might not want him out there. I've seen more than one very talented defenseman, you know, when we're on the road, go off the ice because I'm out there or my line is out there. They just, and not in a bad way. They just, they don't, why would you take physical abuse from, from, from guys you don't have to, you know? Absolutely. And, and, in Scott's case, you're not going to hurt him. He's going to, if anything, catch you with his head down, and like you're going to get hurt. He's going to want to put you on your butt. You so. talked about being teammates with Scott down the road and playing with him in New Jersey, and, and you had that enforcer role, which we're going to talk a little bit more about here shortly. Did you ever have somebody that you had to fight, and then a couple of years later, your teammates with them, and, and was there ever an awkwardness there? Uh, not the awkwardness wasn't that way. So when I... Uh, and it happened when I was in Winnipeg. I fought. I'd fought Stu Grimson a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. And we ended up being, we ended up being teammates in Anaheim. And the guys you fight, like I fought Randy McKay and I fought Scotty when I went to Jersey. There's always going to be those guys. I fought Shane Curl. I played in Dallas briefly. They're actually probably the first guy you shake hands with and laugh about because you're both doing your job and just the way it was. And all right, let's go get somebody else, right? And so I was teammates with Stu for a couple of years, year and a half in in Anaheim. Great team, absolute great teammate. I went to Washington after that. He, I mean, my family stayed out in, in California. He took the kids to Disney more than oh, one wow. time. He was just absolutely awesome. The hard part came the next year. He went to L.A. I went to Jersey, and we had an, we had a fight in L.A. And we have the fight, no big deal. But his son at the time, Christian, couldn't have been more than maybe four or five years old. So I came out after the game to say hi to everyone. And he saw me and just started bawling. And he's oh like, you tried God. to hurt my daddy. You guys are punching each other. You're supposed to be friends. <laughs> it was, I could just feel myself shrinking every step I took walking towards him, you know, trying to explain to this little guy. It's okay. It's no big deal. Oh, my God. I never even thought about that. Yeah, it's almost on yeah. the opposite side of things. It is. It is. It's not the, yeah, it's, it, the, it's a complete reverse where, you know, guys that had that role had respect. So if you ever saw, even if you saw him off the ice in the summertime or whatever, you bump in, it's no big deal. If you see guys now... Uh, it's no big deal. It's say, and you laugh about it and, and whatever. It's when you're your teammates, then you're not. And there's been there's been guys like that, you know, Kosher and Prober and end up fighting after they were teammates. Uh, Kelly Chase and Tony Twist after they were teammates. Not just teammates pro, not just teammates in the American or International League in Peoria, but also teammates in the Western Hockey League. Those guys were together forever. And then they ended up fighting when, uh, you know, just because the game just went that way, a certain game, and they end up fighting. So that's the harder part is when you've been friends with somebody that long and you still have to go out and do your job. Just a few days after this game on October 17th, it's made official at the Weston in Winnipeg when Barry Schenkauer uh, officially announced that the team had been sold to two U.S. investors, Richard Burke and Stephen Gluckstern. And 
a lot of this had to do with the Canadian dollar and the economy and things like that. But I know you didn't spend a lot of time with Shenkauer, but a lot of people blamed him for this, which I don't think is very fair. What were your experiences with the former Winnipeg Jets owner? I didn't meet him a lot. Uh, the few times he was, a, he couldn't have been a nicer guy. He couldn't have been a greater guy. And it wasn't just the Canadian dollar and the fact, I believe the number was 60 or 65 million that he was offered for the team. It was the fact he couldn't get a new building and right. he did a new building. And, you know, if you look at both or three, you look at, Winnipeg, you look at Quebec City, you look at Hartford. All three owners said, I need a new building. And three times they were told no. And, and I was saying it's up to the, again, it's I'm saying the government should have to or shouldn't have to or whatever. I think you find a way to work together on something like that if the team matters that much to the city or to the to the area. But you had three teams that, in the case of, of uh, Hartford, obviously the, the owner kept the team and moved them on his own. But the other two sold, and they sold big to American interests, and the teams are gone. And uh, Winnipeg's fortunate they got their team back, and it's it's a great place to go to watch a game and, and to scout a game. It's uh, it's loud, it's electric, it's awesome. But uh, you know, it was it was more than just a guy saying, "Oh, hey, I got a chance to make a few mm-hmm. bucks. Let me flip out of this." He wanted a new building, and there was at no point was there ever going to be. It looked like at least the way it was being done in public that that was going to happen. Burke and Gluckstern end up purchasing the team. They're two U.S. investors, and they're talking about moving the team to Minneapolis. But it doesn't end up going to Minneapolis. It ends up going to Phoenix. Do you remember when you found out that, okay, I'm not going to Minnesota. I'm going to Phoenix after all. Not, no, I don't remember exactly because at the time, back then, like, I, again, I think I was on, might have been on a one-year contract. You didn't even think, you never ever said, it's not like now where these, we're all, you know, everybody has four, five, six-year contracts, you know, except the guys that want the two-year bridge contracts to get the bigger to one. To get the bigger one then, yeah. Right. Back then, it was like, I think Keith, that big offer sheet Keith signed couldn't have been more than maybe four four years or something, and that was our best player with 50 goals. Everyone else was on one- and two-year deals. There was no guarantee you were going anywhere. So I don't remember when it was announced. I remember most guys probably didn't think much of it in the sense that you didn't even, you're in the season, you're trying to play for that next contract. You weren't saying, oh, gee, I'm going to move to Phoenix and mm-hmm. buy a house and live there for 10 years. It, it didn't, that's not how it worked. I think. Maybe what we thought about a little as we, were, as we followed it, I, I believe Houston was one of the places they had talked about, and the, they couldn't get in there because the owner owned the building that had basketball, and he said no. And there was, I want to say Portland, Oregon was the other place that they had talked about. But now I don't think there was a big reaction around most of the guys because you didn't you didn't look that far ahead back then. You're, you didn't have a contract that would allow you to, or the ability. You know, you could, you know, the way things were then, you weren't playing well. You weren't the guy, you weren't going to be on that that plane or bus heading south. Man, times have changed. They really have. At the end of October, the Jets head to California to play the Sharks and the Ducks. While the team split both games, what dominated the headlines was the officiating. Around this time, the NHL management had decided to crack down on obstruction calls across the board. As a physical player, you know, the hooking, the grabbing that we talked about, they're really trying to cut back on that. In this era, how hard is it to adjust your game? You know what? I didn't. Here's the funny part. For guys, on, especially on the third and fourth line, you didn't do as much of that as people thought. The, the guys that did it, you had to be a better player to do it, and it was usually the best players that had it done to them, if that makes sense. Where I was lucky, I had a great relationship with all the, the linesmen and the referees. I didn't, I just never got into it with them. And I can tell you, if I did a put a stick on a guy, if I started tugging, I could hear a ref say, don't do that, or get off him, or, and they give me one warning. If you get the second time, they call it. So it's funny, like if you go back and look, when uh, several seasons later when they decided to go all in and try to call it, it was the mid-'90s, that year, they only called it for probably two-thirds of the year, but I think it was Lemieux and, and Yager played together. They ended up with over 60 goals each. But go back and track when they came out of the lockout and did it. 
track the penalty minutes of the great players, of the top skill players or point guys, and see how high their penalty minutes are. Because they, a lot of the time, those were the guys doing it, believe it or not, because it was done to them all the time. So they could do it and get away with it if it makes sense, especially if they were trying to regain. They lost possession offensively and they are gaining it back. They do a quick hook or a tug and they get it back. And so for, like I said, for a guy like me, there was no big adjustment. And if anything, like we said, this is, this is awesome. We don't want this in the game. I can forecheck quicker. I can, for a big guy, it's hard to get going. And if somebody's hooking you, it's, it's even harder, right? So to get going, to be able to get your feet moving, to be able to forecheck, to be able to do whatever it is you're doing. I thought it was great to get rid of it. There, you know, I don't know why. The, I think the complaining comes from in order to get everybody's mindset right, you're going to see 20 penalties in a game, right? Which is when we came out and started doing it, even the slashing two years ago. They called slashing, and sometimes it was really ticky-tack, but they called it through exhibition and through the start of the year and and starting to sneak back in, but it, it went away last year. And what away went with it was a lot of the little hooking on the hands that their guys were getting away with because now guys don't even reach with their sticks, or they didn't. So it, it's not a matter of, of doing it. I think you have to, whatever the penalty is going to be, you've got to start it in training camp to get guys' minds right. But guys will adjust. Guys always do. If you just said tomorrow, okay, we're not, you can't take a slap shot. Well, you just got to keep calling it consistently. As soon as you stop calling, as soon as some guys start shooting slap shots and doesn't get called, everyone's going to start doing it again. I don't think it was that big a deal. I think it's probably a bigger deal. Certainly a bigger deal to the fans if you go and you're, you're watching a game and all it is is penalty minutes and it's minor penalties and hooking and holding and stuff like that. That's not exciting to watch, I'm sure. But uh, as players, I think you just adjust. And if it's making the game better or faster, uh, or more competitive, or it's allowing the skill guys to do what they do, which is what we really want, right? Right. You should, you should be separated by your skill, and you should be separated by your effort and your compete. And, you know, I'm not sure the effort and compete, I don't think, is, a, is allowed right now. I don't think you compete very hard now in the game without the puck, without getting a penalty. It's really hard to do that, but uh, certainly the skill guys are getting lots of room. At the beginning of November, the Jets head to Buffalo to play in the old Buffalo Auditorium, which this was the last year the auditorium would be open. We hear about Madison Square Garden. We hear about the Boston Gardens and the legendary Chicago Stadium. The old odd, what kind of atmosphere did that building have? It was insane. They played that Bumblebee song. I can't I don't even know what the song is called. And they had like when I was playing, they had the the you know, the flying Wallendas there. They had Rob Ray Razor was there and and uh Mayday. And Barnaby and Gord Donnelly, like it was just, you know, it was the work release program playing for the Sabres, right? <laughs> but it was a small little building and it would be buzzing. And again, like it was, you know, even if your team's not doing well in the standings, if your team, if the team comes out and plays physical and competes, I mean, it's still the same way now. It's funny to watch a game. There's a big hit. Sometimes that's the loudest the building gets, you know, through a course of a game is a, is a big hit because the physical play, that's what people love to see. They love to see not a dirty hit, not a hit from behind, and certainly not a hit from the head. I don't know where those came from or why they're in there, but just a good hit. A good hit's when you put somebody on their butt, create some kind of turnover and, and a scoring chance maybe for your team. So uh, it was, I love playing there. It was a great place. And the old story was you'd have to talk to Razor, get the guy's name or Mayday, but in the one end where uh, you were the visiting team twice, they came out that end. They had a trainer that would sit there at the gate and when Buffalo was dumping the puck, they'd rim it around and he'd push on the gate with his feet. He sat in a chair and it put made an edge and that puck would hit the edge and shoot out in front of your net. And they knew that. So one guy would be firing the puck around the boards, the trainer on the, uh, off the ice would be sitting in a chair, leaning on it, uh, making this ridge. And then the guys, two guys would be going hard on that, looking for that loose puck to come out in the slot. You got to be kidding me. Cause I actually, now that you say that specifically remember when yeah. the Washington Capitals, because I'm in Washington, D.C., would play the Buffalo Sabres, where you would have maybe one or two plays a game 
where they would wrap it around the boards and then it would yeah. wind up taking that weird bounce yeah. in front of the goalie. I had no idea yeah. that there was a trainer sitting there doing that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And was oh, that yeah. was that commonly known around the league or did you find out about that later? I found out because I played, came up with Hartford, who played there enough times that it must have happened to them two or three times where they're like, you know, watch out when they're rimming the puck. <laughs> when, they're, when they shoot the puck in this way, here's where it's coming out. I'm like, what? They're like, yeah, there's a guy sitting there pushing on the pushing on the door with his feet, making a wedge, and that puck's going to come skipping out in the middle. I'm like, what? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, I think you, you pick up yeah. on that pretty quick. Speaking of playing, at this time you're playing with Ed Roman and Mike Eastwood, and I, I know that – Terry Simpson, the coach, liked to juggle the lines a lot. But how was your chemistry with those two guys? Well, they were great. They were great guys. Uh, Eastie was a really good face-off guy, smart player, good two-way player. And Eddie could skate. Uh, he was another college kid. He was a great guy. And he could skate. And, uh, you know, so that made it, you know, easy guys to play with. And also, sometimes you get guys that nobody wants to be on the fourth line mm-hmm. if the fourth line is not used right. And what I mean is if you're just an afterthought, you play, you know, whatever you play, five minutes a game, six minutes. Nobody wants to be down there, and certainly a guy that belongs. Like any time a guy would get in trouble on the top couple lines, he's not playing well or whatever, coach would be like, ah, and he put him out there. And, and we didn't want him either like because we knew he was going to play half speed. He's going to like give up a scoring chance. And plus minus stuff was important to us because we didn't score a lot of goals. So to have three guys that, that bought into that, you know what, and those two guys could play up. They play on the third line too as well. But when you buy into it as a group, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to get scored on. That's our big role. Okay, so if we're out there against the top line, just move pucks out, out. You know, Easty usually stayed high, so uh, so he could be the low guy at the far end, and and, and I would forecheck and, and try to do make up, you know, whatever chaos we could while we we're in there, kind of thing. So easy guys to play with because, uh, like I said, they bought into it. Terry Simpson, we mentioned him just a few minutes ago. What kind of coach was he? I he was he seemed like a good coach. It was only one year, so you know, I didn't really get to know him real well. You know, it's it's hard to it's hard to tell. I mean, it's when your team's for sale and everybody knows mm-hmm. it and the sale and all that, it takes away from anything you do on the ice. Yep. So you could go back and if you looked at that team, especially with Tamo there, how talented that team was, you know, and, and to finish where we did, not to lose to Detroit, because I believe that was the year Detroit set a new record. They won like seventy games or some crazy. They won the thing. presidents and won like sixty five. I talked to Tim Taylor yeah. about that season. It was ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it was insane. They had such a good team and that's who we played in the playoffs, but um, you know, maybe if we'd finish somewhere different, you do more, you know, you, you do more damage in the playoffs. You win a round or something like that. Cause I said, from Hobby Bulin and Nett all the way out through the guys you had, it's a pretty talented team, but the hardest thing for any team to do, um, is, and I was in Hartford briefly when they went through ownership issues. Uh, you know, they went through it in Nashville. I wasn't playing anymore, but anytime that stuff is, is out there, it's so hard to play it's because, Every article, it seems like every headline the next morning, it doesn't matter how good you played or who you beat, then they get up the next morning, the first headline's about off-ice issues. And that takes that away from what you're doing. But people go to movies, they watch TV, and they go to sporting events to, to have fun and to enjoy stuff and get away from them, whatever their life is. Not in a bad way, but they want to be entertained. And Absolutely. if you're showing up at a rink and it's half empty because the owner's selling the team or moving or whatever, they're like, well, why are we wasting our time? This isn't fun. So there can be that cloud. Um, you know, like I said, I thought we had a really talented team, and uh, we got a bad matchup, uh, especially for a young team. That's a, that was a bad matchup to play a veteran team like uh, a talented team like Detroit, but certainly a good team. I don't know about you guys, but I could definitely see Jim McKenzie as a pro wrestler. There's so many guys in the NHL I could have seen as pro wrestlers. 
I want to thank Jim again for coming on. As I mentioned in the intro, I really enjoyed interviewing him. He couldn't have been a nicer guy. I think everyone's going to really enjoy part two where we cover more of the Winnipeg Jets. We kind of talk about the end of the season, the fans, stuff along those lines. In the meantime, thanks for checking us out. Don't forget to tune in Thursday for part two of our episode with Jim McKenzie. We'll see you then. 